it's it's not often that you see our kids reading stories by us and for us and i think his ela teachers does such a wonderful job in incorporating those stories you know um the first book they read during the semester i was like oh my god i just interviewed i just had a q and a with a literary agent who published that book and you know i said that to my kid and he's like whatever <laughs> cuz i was like she highly recommended that book and it turned out that now he was reading it in class so i was like wow you know i'm very happy that that you guys are reading latino authors in your in your school Yeah. Um so my son is never going to be able to say I didn't read Latino authors, you know? Yo, what up y'all? Dimelo. Welcome to another episode of the Quien Tu Eres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel. Excited to be here with y'all bringing you another episode and a very special guest. This week on the podcast we have Angela Abreu, aka Angie She's the founder and creative director of Dominican Writers Association. Now, before getting into it, you don't have to be Dominican to relate to this story. You don't even have to be Dominican to be a fan of what Angie is doing with the Dominican Writers Association. In fact, this is relatable to probably so many of us. I mean, how often were you in school, whether it be middle school, high school, college, and you're being forced to read books that you can't even relate to by sharing in some of these experiences it really led her to creating Dominican Writers Association you're going to hear all about these experiences in this episode a little bit more about Angie though she is a Dominican American mom writer and community organizer Angie firmly believes that if it does not exist then you must create it and that's exactly what she did in 2015 feeling dismissed as a Dominican American writer in many literary spaces she decided to create Dominican Writers Association a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is solely dedicated to highlighting content that not only promotes the work of Dominican writers but also provides these writers with the tools and resources necessary for their development also one more thing wherever you're listening to this podcast please subscribe please share with your friends colleagues And if there is an option to leave a review and a rating, please do so. With that said, let's get into the episode. All right, so I typically start the podcast with the same question. You know, when people tell you to be your authentic self or when you hear the word authenticity, what comes to mind for you? Being you, regardless of, you know, of what people think, um not doing the code switching, not doing, you know, um Sometimes you have to go by this respectability, you know, um rules and whatnot. But yeah, be respectful, but be you, you know? Um don't fake it just because you're in a certain room around certain people. Um majority of the time if people don't like you for who you are then you know, get to hacer. Que se joden, no verdad? Que se va a hacer. I mean, there are people who are out there who are just assholes. I mean, like I said, just be respectful. <laughs> yeah. Well, But, how how you know, how, how much of how much of yourself is that today though? Like are you comfortable being yourself as you describe it or is it still like a work in progress? Um I think I've always been the the outspoken stand my ground um 
type of person and maybe it's because I'm a Taurus and it's like, you know, my way or the highway <laughs> type of thing. Like I've never been the type to be part of cliques um, or fall under peer pressure, you know, cause sometimes you, you, you growing up in high school or as a young adult, you have friends that are like, yeah, do this. And even though it's a bad idea, many youngsters go along with it. I, I am that person that says, nah, I don't think so. You could feel however you want to feel about that. That's on you, <laughs> but I don't feel comfortable doing it. So I'm walking away. So, you know, I've, I've been like that most of my life, I, I believe. And um, as you get older, um, you understand that a lot of people behave a certain way and it has nothing to do with you. Where did you, where did you get that from though? Was it? Well, I have a like... mental health degree. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So my, I'm a, I have a master's in mental health counseling, which I don't practice, but psychology has always been something that has interested me and the psychology of people and social norms and, and behavior that has always been an interest to me. So I spend, you know, I, I, I go into a room and I'm studying you like, you know, why did you say that? And, you know, and sometimes I have friends that come up to me and be like, oh, I, have, I got into this argument with somebody and whatnot. I can't believe they said that. And I was like, I don't think it's about you. It seems that there's something going on in their personal life. And they projected that onto you. Because, you know, sometimes you haven't done anything to inflict harm on someone. But whatever that person is going through in their personal life, and, and if they don't have a control over it, and they don't know how to react, or, you know, that's their defense mechanism, anger. But that, right? but that outspokenness, though, like, where did you get that from? Like, that wasn't well, from your... that's just been, I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, it's, it's, I think as a child, I was silent a lot. I was an only child, uh, not an only child. My brothers are going to kill me. I am, not, <laughs> I am not an only child. I grew up with two siblings, but I am the oldest, but I am also the only girl. And my mother w spent her entire 40s, I guess, um, frustrated and stressed. You know, when you're a single parent and you're raising kids and you you don't speak the language and you don't know a lot of what the resources you have available to you is it's frustrating and it's stressful and my mother wasn't trying to hear us like talk <laughs> i remember that i used to talk a lot when i was a kid and she was like tu tienes que callarte tu habla mucho you know and it wasn't and it wasn't like you know, what are you feeling? Those type of conversation, what's going on with you? Those conversations never happened in my house. Like, it was just like, I'm raising you. Yeah, do what you gotta do. I'm gonna do what I gotta do as a parent until you're all adults and you guys figure it out. You know, that was how she showed her love by giving us what we needed, right? Making sure that we were fed, that we had clothes on, on our backs, that, you know, that we were going to school, that we had the essentials. But when it came to like emotional development, my mom was not it. And, and that's the case for a lot of immigrant parents. So because I, I feel that because I was silent a lot during my childhood, um, I also noticed that um, instances where people would try to take advantage of me because they relate silence with meekness or or um 
or, you know, you're fragile, you know, and, and they could get away with doing whatever they want with you or to you and whatnot. And to me, that was just like, oh, you just did that because you thought that I wasn't going to say anything or that I wasn't gonna defend myself. I get it. So, you know, now I was like, if you don't tell people things and you don't set those boundaries and set your standards, people will really walk over you. Yeah. And I, and I feel that boundaries are so important when it comes to um, relationships. I struggle with that in my, in my romantic relationship, like boundaries, because I'm, I'm a giver. <laughs> um, so th- those are things that I struggle with. But when it comes to, you know, toxicity and people who family members or friends who might be toxic around you, um, you got to put your foot down. You got to set those boundaries because people will walk over you over and over again. And then and they'll behave like they're completely oblivious to what they're doing. Right. Because, yeah. you know, sometimes you have people doing things and they'll be like, I didn't do that. Or I don't know why you took it that way. Or. <laughs> You know, they try to gaslight you. And I'm like, eh, no, yeah, what, I know what you're what, doing. What were some of those early experiences where you felt like you had to speak up for yourself? Does anything come to mind? I guess, you know, in in certain friendships, I could say, or even romantic relationships with people who just do things and just feel like they could get away with it. Um, you know, and even sometimes your own family members. You know, like you don't say anything and you let and you they keep repeating the same behavior and because you don't say anything. Right. And it, un, until the day that you say, look, I feel this way about what you're doing. And if you keep doing it, we're not going to have a relationship like that was, for example, that was something that I had to do with my dad. I spent like eight years that I didn't speak to my dad. Um, and it was because he, he kept doing these things to me ever, ever, every time that I went to visit him in DR. And then the last time it just erupted into this huge argument. And, and I was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. Like, I, like the, the energy it takes for me to deal with the situation and the negativity and the toxicity, um, I can't deal with it. And you need to get your shit together because that shit is not about me. Yeah. You know, um, my dad is very um, machista, which is weird. He's like that with me, but not with my sister. And and I feel that it's it's I feel that it's weird because he was able to raise my sister, but he wasn't able to raise me. Mm-hmm. So he feels in a way that my mother took that away from him. And sometimes he projects that that anger towards me. And I'm just like, I have nothing to do with that. Like, if you're angry at my mom at how your relationship turned out and my mom not telling you that you had a daughter, that's on you and her. <laughs> you know, like, I know he still carries that with him. Um, but I'm just like, that has nothing to do with me. You know, there's, you know, he, the last time I, I had seen him, he was, he insulted my mom and told him that she, told her that she raised me incorrectly. Que yo era un marimacho. Wow. Because I am very independent and self-sufficient, and I'm just not the type of person to ask for permission to do anything at all. Like, 
I'm just not that person. I'm never going to ask a man for permission. I'm never going to ask a dad for permission. I'm an adult. Like, why do I have to ask you for permission to do anything? Especially if it's something that it's about pursuing my dreams or pursuing my goals, doing something that's for my betterment or, you know, for me to feel good about myself or improve my person. Why would you have an issue with that? Yeah. You know, but he it erupted into something and then it took me a few years to and having conversations with my siblings for me to realize that this is who my dad is he has a lot of pent-up anger against towards my mom and that has nothing to do with me and then when I went back two years ago we just acted like nothing ever happened like I never hung up the phone on him (laughs) so but yeah you know there's there's those situations that you got to speak up. You got to defend yourself um, because people will take advantage of you. That's, that's so and, interesting. And cause... change your behavior too, because, you know, like I said, I'm a giver, but if I don't stop giving and change that about me, people will be like, oh, let me go to Angie because she's going to give. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Whatever it is, whether it's resources or information or, um, I don't know, love or material things, whatever the case may be, they'll be like, oh, well, this is the type of person that she is. So let me go, you know, let me stick around or take advantage of that. Yeah, well, it's crazy too, because like part of us, you know, figuring out who our authentic selves are is really like stepping away and really like unlearning what people's expectations of us are, right? Or like unlearning what they like not necessarily going for like what they want us to do, but really going for like what we want to do. And you mentioned a little while ago, like you want, like there was resistance around you looking to chase your dreams, right? Like what was that? And what was that idea? And sort of what was that resistance that you got? Well, one of the things was when I was getting my master's that I said that to my, I shared that information to my dad and my dad just looked at me like, why are you going to keep studying? Like you already, you know, like as a woman, you already did more than you were supposed to, right? Like he literally told me, you should be concerning yourself with finding a man to take care of you and forget the master's degree. (laughs) And to me, that was just so insulting because my mom didn't raise me like that. Like, you know, and years prior, I had ended a relationship with my, with my, my child's father. And I was never that person that, missed anything financially because he wasn't there you know like everything's financially stayed the same the bills were still getting paid the same because I made sure that I went to school that I had a good job that I was self-sufficient and that I would never have to depend on anyone to take care of me so which I think is a huge plus right (laughs) but for my dad who's a machista you know born and raised in DR men over there are taught that, you know, la mujer está debajo de ti. And that, you know, the woman is supposed to be taken care of by the man, even if that means you oppressing her. Right? Even if that means you, you know, they get women pregnant, we're also responsible for getting pregnant because it's a a two-way thing, right? But if you're uneducated and you don't have sexual education, you have no idea how to take care of, of your sexual health, right? But, um, you know, in DR, you have men that, you know, pursue women and they don't want them to work. They just want him to be home, take care of the kids, take care of the home, cater to them, 
right? And then they could go out there and do whatever they please. And if that relationship ever ends, what happens to the woman? How is she going to support those kids, right? She has no education because you told her not to go to school because I got you, right? She doesn't have a job because you said, I got you. Mm -hmm. So what happens then? And, and to me, that was something that my mother always, you know, and that I learned by, by living with um, my mom. Um, you know, and even growing up, I saw that my mom was very self-sufficient. My stepfather left when I was 12, and my mother was like, I'm going to do what I got to do to, you know, take care of my kids. So, you know, I had that example at home. It couldn't have been any other different. And I always felt that because I was like, yo, my stepfather left. And my mother had to bust her ass to raise kids. I don't want to be that person. Right? I don't want to be like, you know, my mother went to high school only and she didn't speak English. So to me, it was just like, I need to learn as much as possible and be aware of what my resources and tools are and educate myself. So if I ever have a child, my child is never going to have to experience the things that we had to experience as kids. Yeah. And, and through all of that, right? Like there are probably like so many cultural references of you growing up, right? You're Dominican. I get that. I hear that. I, I am as well. Um, but then there's like this, there are things that I'm sure like you were very proud of being Dominican, but then there's also this like machismo culture that is like part of the culture as well. Like what was your relationship like with just like your Latinidad and being Dominican grow up, growing up in New York? Like, was there any shame of it? Were you always proud of it? Just like, what was that dynamic like? You know what? When you grow up in Washington Heights with a bunch <laughs> of Dominicans, you're not really thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> right? You're not because everyone looks like you. Right? Your entire neighborhood are mostly Dominicans. I mean, now you walk in. I, I still live in the Heights, but now you walk around and you see that certain areas are getting gentrified. So it's a little bit different, but growing up, everyone was Latino. So you're not really thinking about, you know, um, I guess to me, when it really hit me that I was Latino and people looked at me differently or below them was when I was in high school. Um, because when I was in high school, um, we, my school inher inherited the Stuyvesant building, the old Stuyvesant school building, which is on 15th and 1st Avenue. Um, and the building had asbestos. So we ended up spending about six weeks at the new Stuyvesant building. And that's when we noticed what privilege was. What, what was that like? High school students had a multi-million dollar building with every amenity and every type of resources that they could ever need in their entire life. Um, they, I believe they had a swimming pool. They had a, a huge auditorium. They had like three types of cafeteria, like kosher food, vegetarian and regular food. They had escalators that would take you from one, from like the third floor to like the sixth floor. It was just like, it was, re it's ridiculous. The type of school building that they have. And, and to me, I was just like, oh, I'm from the hood. <laughs> You know, cause you like, you like, yo, my lockers don't even open. <laughs> you know, like we get this crappy lunch, lunch from school, but y'all get chefs. What? We don't got that. You know, and and the and most of those 
most of the kids that go to Stuyvesant are white or Asian, right? So they don't look like me. There's a very, sm very small, small percentage that looks like me. So, you know, it was then that I, that I noticed that I was like, oh, okay, yo soy Latina and this is, you know, I guess society doesn't feel that people that look like me and speak like me deserve, um, you know, what these students are getting, even if I'm a, a, as much of a student as they are, right? Even if I have the same grades as they are, they're still looking at me like, you know, and then you have colleges that open like the equal opportunity program so people like me can get in. And I'm just like, why not just let me in without a program? How about that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> how about that? Why I got applied to a program? Do you have the white people apply to a program for equal yeah. opportunity? Yeah. No, they automatically get in. But if you're, you know, if you're a POC, it's just like, yeah, here's these programs specifically for you so you could get the help you need to go to college. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's crazy because like New York is such an interesting place where you can have that one high school that is like not funded at all. And then down the street, you could have this school that people are paying like $50,000 a year to get into it, it like college prices. It's crazy. Yeah. And like I live, I live in uh, I live in Riverdale right now, and by here is uh, I don't know. You know oh Horace yeah, I'm very familiar with Riverdale. You know Horace Mann. It looks like a college oh, campus yeah. up there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's crazy. Meanwhile, you have schools in the Horace city. Horace Mann. I forget. Damn. I I used to know what their tuition was, but it is like fifty thousand a year. Yeah, it's crazy. Meanwhile, you have people in the city that don't even have textbooks. Yep. But it's because the parents fund the school, right? But why can't other schools figure out some sort of mechanism to do the same? I mean, my son's middle school kind of works like that. Our teacher, his teacher, um, his principal is like, un like he gets that money. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fundraising. He does a, a lot of fundraising. He does a lot of negotiations and stuff with, with, with politicians and whatnot. And I'm like, you're going to get me the money I need for this school. Yeah. And, you know, his school is like on Tremont. So, you know, it's not a, it's not the greatest area. It's like two blocks from Bronx Community College. So you, if you know that area, that's not yeah. like the best area. They, so um, he, he still has a, a lot of funding for the school, which is wonderful. And one of the things that I liked when I found out that this was the principal, because I was like, okay, he really does care about the, the student pop population. Yeah. So, so you find yourself like in this, in this environment in high school where you finally realize like the haves and have nots, what, you know what I mean? Or like, not that you didn't have anything, but it's just the difference, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you were thinking about going to college, like did, did that impact what you wanted to study at all? No, um, I, when I was in high school, I went to a high school for health professions because ever since I was um, in my preteens, I always knew that I wanted to be in the health professions. Um, so I wanted to be a nurse. And um, when I was applying for college, my mom got into a real bad accident. And my brothers were not the best nurturers. <laughs> so I felt guilty going away to college and leaving my mom. Um, so I gave it up. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even bother applying to go away because um, I knew that my mom was going to need me and that she wasn't going to be able to, to depend as much on my brothers. 
um, who were teens and going through their own, you know, teenage angst and whatnot. Um, so I stayed and I ended up going to Lehman um, for nursing. And then um, I ended up giving it up because science and chemistry, chemistry and all those calculus and all that stuff, I, that's just not me. I, I, I can't wrap my head around those things. So um, I ended up switching to John Jay to do forensic psychology, which I loved. Um, and when I wanted to do my master's years later, I did it in mental health counseling, which is kind of like the same, um, the same route of, of psych, you know, counseling, therapy, psychology. That's so interesting. Wait, so where did you get this? Where did you get this passion for writing? Was this always in the back of your head and you were doing it on the side? It's from being silence. When people don't want to hear you talk, <laughs> You take a pen and paper and you write. So I, when I was 12, I got, you know, um, before my stepdad left us, he had given me a diary. And for me, that was like, oh, I could write everything I don't want to listen to in here. <laughs> and that's what I did. And I kept the diary well into my mid-20s. And I'm talking about, I used to have them out here in my living room, but... um. I'm talking about, I used to write voraciously. It was just like, todo, todo, like everything. I would put it down on paper. Um, and, and I really loved, you know, what writing did for me. It was therapeutic. If ever I was going through something and you write it and you leave it on the paper and, you know, that it's almost as if you told someone, right? So that was, that was very helpful for me in my mid twenties. And I just loved the, the, the craft always. And, and the fact that I was also, you know, an avid reader and I saw what writing, you know, culminated into books and these stories and these adventures and you could, you know, disappear in a book and for a few days. And, you know, that to me, that that's always been wonderful. I, I mean, in full transparency, I do it every morning. I literally, I journal every morning. These days, I mean, I, I've recently transitioned to, to my iPad because it's so, it's so dope. Like it transcribes your, your writing into like actual text in case you want to like email it to yourself. Uh, and then it's just like easier to erase, but I, I do it every morning. I love it. Yeah, I recommend that to people whenever. I don't do it anymore. I don't write anymore. Um, mainly because my brain is like just in into um, running this platform, but um, but yeah, um, I recommend it to people all the time. Like, cause they people ask me, how do I get into the habit of writing and whatnot, and I'm like, journal, journal. Pick ten, fifteen minutes during the morning or before bed or whenever you have time on your commute or whatnot, and journal. You know, it doesn't have to be a story or anything, just write. And, you know, after a while, you end up picking up the habit of, of doing that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny, too, that you mentioned, you know, you, not only you're an avid writer, but you're an avid reader as well. And uh, I, I forgot where I was listening to you talk, but it resonated so much with me because, like, I've just recently became more of, like, an avid reader. But before, I used to pick up books, and I'm just like why, why is it, why do I have to pull up a dictionary to be able to read this book? And like, why, even in high school when they were like assigned books to me, I'm just like, why am I reading Shakespeare? Like this story makes no sense to me. 
I remember you went through something similar, right? Where you didn't feel like seen in a lot of ways in the books. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Um, that always called my attention when I was in high school and I'm like, why am I reading these stories? Like I don't relate with Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> Like, but someone did point out to me, I'm like, you know, it creció un campo. So, <laughs> farmland, it's, I'm like, yeah, that's about as much as I could relate to Huckleberry Finn. Why am I reading these books? Why am I not reading Latino authors? I was never, ever reading Latinos. I never read a Latino author in college. Like, I, when I read Latino authors, it's because I went out to do that research. And to me, I found that so disheartening. I'm like, why do I have to go do the research to read these books? But times have changed. You know, like yesterday, my, my son texts me because he's, he's with his dad and he's taking his ELA class. And he's like, look what we're reading. And he sends me the image and he, he, they're reading Julia Alvarez in his class. So to me, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? And I was like, do you know who that is? And he's like, ma, you won't stop talking about her. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, of course I know who she is. And I was like, I'm so, and sometimes I'm just, I just feel like emailing his teacher and be like, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> right. So, um, you, you know, cause it's, it's not often that you see our kids reading stories by us and for us. And I think his ELA teacher does such a wonderful job in incorporating those stories, you know? Um, the first book they read during the semester, I was like, oh my God, I just interviewed, I just had a Q&A with a literary agent who published that book. And, you know, I said that to my kid and he's like, whatever. Because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she highly recommended that book. And it turned out that now he was reading it in class. So I was like, wow, you know, I'm very happy that that you guys are reading Latino authors in your in your school. Yeah. Um, so my son is never going to be able to say I didn't read Latino authors, you know, he and every time like I have all these books up here. So recently I bought two. I had I had a hard time finding YA Dominican authors um, who wrote um with male protagonists and i ended up finding one and he's the only one um so the two books that he has i purchased them so now like when my son is on break i'm like yeah you're reading this so you know i i, I make sure that he's reading all these all these books because i never want him to experience what i did i don't think it's you know he might not appreciate it right now and it, not, it, might, it might not be a thing for him, but to me, it was a huge thing um, growing up that I had to wait until my mid-20s for me to figure out that there were actually Latinos writing books. Well, it, it's crazy because it's not only about, like, reading this, but I remember, I think you were telling a story in college that you were writing a paper in about, like, your experience and the way that you would speak, right? And, like, you were getting feedback that, yo, this isn't how you should be writing, essentially, right? Yeah, or or she, my professor wasn't understanding the nuances of Dominicanidad that I was expressing in my stories, right? It was Caribbean life, and, um, you know, and because she wasn't understanding, it was deemed incorrect. So I'm just like, but how are you going to tell me that my experience is invalid? just because you don't understand it. 
Tell me about that though. Like, what was it that you were writing in some of these stories that well, seemed there was this incorrect? one story that I wrote that it was um it was about um my grandmother's death, right? Um, and I keep meaning to to rewrite it and um because i have it on paper right now um i have if i have the story i probably have it on a floppy disk (laughs) (laughs) a floppy disk you're dating yourself right um so i have it printed on paper so i have to like um transfer it to my to my computer but um it was a story about the funeral at my grandmother when my grandmother passed away and there were just so many things that was happening in that funeral at one time and you know I I spoke about going to the campo and the you know the entire campo coming out to say goodbye to my grandmother and you know um just certain things that you share about your life or growing up or things that actually do happen because you're from a specific place, but people doubt it because they've never lived it. Right. So then they ask you to edit that out because who's going to believe that actually happened. Right. Um, for example, I, I always laugh cause you know, we always see on Instagram, like Lo Motorita with like two or three people in the back or Calgando yeah. un saco de platano or the other days, my friend sent me one and it was like, someone carrying like they were the person behind them or something like that and i'm like people probably think that shit is photoshop (laughs) (laughs) but no this is actual things that happen in br like i don't know if it happens in any other caribbean country but it happens where i'm from so to me, to me, I find it so insulting that just because you haven't experienced something, you doubt it. Therefore, it didn't happen. It's not real, and you shouldn't be talking about it. Yeah, well, right? it's funny. It's funny. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I agree. And you know, a lot of what I'm trying to do is really like redefine what professionalism looks like in different fields. And I mean, for me, like I remember the first time I read. Um, a book by Juno Diaz and I saw the word like yo in a book and I was just like you can, you can be a writer and write stuff that. like this. Yeah. Or, I mean, it wasn't even used yo, but it was like a bunch of slang. But, you know, the way that, you know, he did it in a creative way where it just But like, that was his authentic voice. Exactly. But what you're And that's doing, actually how he speaks in person. So, <laughs> so it's, it, to me, it's like, oh, so that's incorrect. Like, and we're still fighting with that in publishing. We're still fighting with, oh, you shouldn't use Spanglish in your writing. And if you Mm -hmm. are using Spanish, then you should include footnotes. And one of the people who has rebelled against that has been Elizabeth Acevedo. She's like, Mm -hmm. no, how many, how often haven't I had to read a book in English and I've had to go Google a certain word. So guess what? You're reading something and it has Spanish in it, go do the same thing. I'm not going to put footnotes down there to make life easier for you. You don't put footnotes when I'm reading your book, right? So why I got to do it when I'm speaking my native language? Yeah, that's, yo, and that takes, that takes a lot of just confidence to be able to say that. Like, shout out to her. But then you're fighting with editors and you're fighting Mm -hmm. with people in the publishing industry who are telling you, no, you have to do it this way. Why? Because the 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 majority of the market and people who are buying those books are white people and we need to appease the white people and the white gays because they're the ones reading your book Mm -hmm. 
is that is that is that a huge challenge like for you like running Dominican Writers Association is that like one of the big challenges for you as far as like motivating people and telling people like it's okay to be who you are in the writing that you do we have a lot of conversations about that but I don't think that I have um bumped into you know, a lot of the writers that we cater to are writers that self-publish. So they, they're going to write how they speak. They're going to write with their own voice. But it's when you get into the publishing industry that it becomes an issue. Because you have, they, they have invested, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on you. And they want to make sure that your book comes out a certain way and that they get their investment back. And sometimes that means you sacrificing certain, you know, aspects of your story. And yeah. even if that means you sacrificing your voice sometimes or changing so many things, you know, um, I have an author that um, it was translating a book for, for someone and she's like, you know, I'm just so tired of having to fight um, to, you know, with translation into Spanish because these people feel that Spanish is a, is, is a universal language that you speak Spanish in DR the same way you speak Spanish in Bolivia or Uruguay or Venezuela or, you know, any, and Colombia. It's not, it's not universal. So, you know, it's a pain in the ass when you got to work with people who, who just don't get it, who just don't understand. That's so interesting. All right. So for me, like I was having a conversation with, with another author and she's like, She's like, you know, isn't it funny that our, our stories are valid when we um, write in English, but not when we write in Spanish? And then when we do publish in English, they ask us to translate it to Spanish. Wait, why did they say it's not valid when you write it in Spanish? So here's the thing. I've come across a lot of Spanish writing authors who are award winners, and they have a very difficult time finding a literary agent. And without a literary agent, a publishing house won't publish you. Right? So to me, it's mind-boggling that these award-winning authors cannot get a literary agent to represent them in their Spanish writing. They have to write in English to get a literary agent. And is that because these publishing houses, they just don't see like a Spanish speaking audience as being large enough to sell to? Is that why? Exactly. It's funny because we... So what they do is they have you publish in English first and then they'll get a translator to translate your book into Spanish. But that, that... book is going to be published in smaller quantities. Mm. And most of the time, they're not even published in the U.S. They let um, small presses outside of the U.S. purchase the rights to translate that book. Interesting. And even if they do translate in Spanish, it's not going to be the author's Spanish. No. Right? For example. to do with the translation. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So we have, uh, we have a few authors that most of the time they send their books to Mexico or to Spain who buy the rights. And then when they, when you read the book in Spanish, you're like, okay, so. (laughs) (laughs) Because as Dominicans, for example, like I want my, any book 
that's written by a Dominican to retain its Dominicanidad. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to still relate to the book if it's if it's translated to Spanish, you know, but that doesn't happen very often. Like m- most often, you know, rights of these books are sold to countries and, and they're translated in that country and that's it. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm pretty sure that the Castilian market is enjoying that book, but I'm not, <laughs> you know, or the Mexican market or whatever is enjoying the translations, but I'm not. So to me, it's very important to find sort of like a cohort of Dominican translators that we, so that we can make publishers aware that they are out there available. And these are the people that you should be hiring to translate your Dominican books. Wow. I'm, I'm, I mean, it's just so different for me because I'm not in that creative space. I've been in marketing my whole life and just like in technology spaces. So it like the way that I code switch or have code switch is so different than like, or like the, the ways that I suppress my identity is just so different than like the way that a writer is forced to suppress his or her identity in many ways. And so let's say I am a writer, I write this wonderful book and I want to stay authentic to my writing style, my Spanglish, all those things is the best and easiest route. Is it, well, not the easiest route, but do most people just end up going the self-publishing routes that they don't give up that creative control? Yeah. And that's obviously a lot more difficult to get recognized, to get found, to get the, wow. Yeah. That's exactly it. Wow. Exactly what yeah. they do. The, publish, the publishing industry is not too supportive of Latinos in publishing and in the way, you know, um, one book that w- I would highly recommend to you if you want to uh, learn a little bit more is um, Borderlands by Gloria Ansaldúa. Um, she speaks a lot about um, us re- retaining our language mm-hmm. and authenticity when we write um, and just in the arts in general, um, you know, and the challenges we face. I mean, she wrote this book many, many years ago, but we're still dealing with the same issues in publishing. Yeah, 100%. And and it's wild, too, because you do all of this work with Dominican Writers Association and <laughs> people think this is your full-time job, but you actually have a full-time job. Yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> what, I have a full-time job. I have and a you don't, And you don't have to say like where you work, but you know, what are some of the things that you do in, in that full-time job? I'm just so curious. I'm a grants manager by mm-hmm. day. So I work with scientific investigators in helping them apply for funding from the government for their, um, for their scientific investigations. Wow. Did not expect that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't write the grants. Um, I just help them with the administrative process and I have to review everything, like their entire proposal and their budgets and whatnot. And I'm the person who has to sign off on it. So that's my day job. Got it. So you're doing all of this work with DWA. Can I call it DWA? Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) Um, And empowering people to be their authentic selves, to find their voice, to to feel powerful and comfortable in that space, right? Fear and right, because so many people are just afraid of just starting that first page. Yeah, but what about what about Angie in her full-time job? How comfortable and confident are you in just like this corporate America setting and bringing your full self to work? Oh, well, I don't know if you saw my stories yesterday, but my supervisor was pissed off because I am my authentic self. <laughs> no way, what happened? 
Um, so I, I posted on my, on my personal Instagram yesterday that, um, you know, we had the snowstorm, right? And um, I texted my boss and, my, and her boss, right? And, um, and um, let me see what I, where it was. And I said to her, good morning. I will not be in the office today. <laughs> Because we rotate and I go into the office twice a week and the rest of the days I'm working from home. And yesterday I was supposed to go in, but this snowstorm fell off. And I said, good morning. I will not be going in today. Um, you know, and she was, she called me and she's like, what do you mean you're not coming in today? I was like, we're in the middle of a snowstorm. Um, I don't even have transportation around me. And you want me to go into screen people and buzz them into the building nah it's not happening so she was just like you know your tone um when you sent that text messages but at least you said you're sorry and i'm just like i'm like oh she wanted me to ask her for permission that's what it was she wanted me to say are you okay with me not going into work are you going to be okay with finding staff to cover me or whatnot? That's not my problem. You're the manager. I'm not going in. I'm not risking my safety <laughs> walking 10 freaking blocks to find a bus, a near a bus near me to, to cross a bridge, to get to the building, to buzz the, to help people and buzz them in. Because that's, that's, the reason why we're rotating is because there's staff that forget their ID and they want somebody in the office to buzz them in. Yeah. Ain't nobody got time for that. Find somebody else. So, and I'm always like that. And I get called out for like my, every time I go through an evaluation with my supervisor or, you know, because I put my foot down, I'm like, and I tell, this is not part of my job responsibilities. You know, like if you're overwhelmed, I understand that. I mean, I'm more than willing to help you, but the way you try to impose certain things on me without asking my opinion, I have an issue with that because this is not part of, this was not part of the hiring process. Yeah. Nowhere was this on the, on the job posting that I well, have to do this. And, and so, so often, so often, like we, the behavior that we put out there, like other people put out there, but they don't get labeled as these things, right? Like to your point, like you got called off your tone, like what? In a text message? I always get called out for my tone all the time. And, and it's, and I guess it's because I don't sugarcoat anything. And I am very straightforward. And I'm just like, wait a minute, wasn't I sending this message to two adults? <laughs> Why do I have to tell you, hey, are you going to be okay? And whatever. And then the funny thing is that the boss boss doesn't care. Mm -hmm. All she says is just close the office. She didn't come in. She herself said, I'm not coming in because there's a snowstorm. But you want me to come in? <laughs> right? Sure. So those things are just like mind boggling to me. And then she's a, a, and she's a black woman right but i think that she's dealing a lot with being authentic she's trying to figure out how to appease her boss and keep her job and then she projects whatever she's going through onto me 
you know, like even yesterday, I keep an email list for the investigators that I work with, right? And she's like asking me, oh, you know, maybe you should also start keeping a list of everyone that has a lab space here. And I'm like, what that got to do with me? I don't need to know who has a lab space in the bill because we work in a hospital and these investigators, they all have labs. And I'm like, why do I need to know if these people have lab space? I need to know, are you applying for grants? That's what I need to know. <laughs> I don't care if you have lab space. That has no, that has no part of the application process. So instead of her saying, oh, maybe you could help me create a list so that we have it for the office, you know, in the future. And instead of her saying that, she says, you should create a list for lab space. So la próxima vez que ella me lo saque a mí, I'm like, I don't need that list. <laughs> you need that list. You should create your list. Were you, were you always that, you know, you know that I, outspoken I, I, at work in particular? I've had so many issues in corporate America that yeah. I've had to put my foot down. Um, and it's just like, I don't know what it is with corporate and, and, and people in, in high positions, they're eagle. And, you know, if you're Latino, if you're a black person, they feel that they could talk to you a certain way and, and treat you a certain way. And I'm just like, nah, that, that's not going to happen here. Like, you need to figure that out on your own. Like, that's not what I was hired. There's no reason for me to be doing all this. You didn't hire what? me. Either you decide what, which position do you want me to fulfill. Because trust me, I have no issue finding somebody who's going to pay me. <laughs> My skills are not that easily found. So, you know... It's like you got to pick and choose because there people will really take advantage of you. I've had people, oh my God, I've had security stand in front of my office in corporate America because I was a Latina and I was working for some doctor and the doctor was doing some shady stuff and they needed to make sure I wasn't helping him. Um, I've had you know, a director of an entire hospital blocked me from getting a better job because she wanted me to keep doing what I was, I, what I was doing for her, which was like sort of like consulting, but I wanted something a little bit more stable, but she wasn't trying to have that. She wanted me in esa posición. So she wasn't trying to see me grow, you know, and, and just, things that I've seen people do and try to do to me in corporate America that I'm just like, if I don't say something, I am never going to be happy. Yeah. I love, I really like my job, but if you make my job a living hell, I'm going to leave. Yeah. You know, and I have, I have these conversations with a coworker of mine because he's, he's always complaining about certain things my supervisor does, but he never says anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, dude, if you tired of something, you got to say something. If not, don't complain because you're not fixing anything by complaining. Yeah. Me, I'll let you one time you get away with it. Second time you might get away with it. The third time I'm going to say, this is not happening anymore. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing this. Yeah. Well, and I, I can empathize with that person 
as far as like not speaking up because I put myself in in their shoes and even in some of the writer's shoes right like even for the writer like they put out a, they put out this this book and they're just like you know what I wanted it a certain way but I really need this paycheck you know what I mean like a lot of times we make decisions yeah. mm-hmm. because of money right and it's easy to like be it's easier I would say to be our authentic self maybe in like high school or middle school like the worst case scenario you may lose a friend right but this has like this is going to affect the money, you know what I mean? Right. And it might affect the rent, your kids, et cetera. So I could see people just faking it just so that they can advance yep. in corporate America. But I think all of us get to like a certain point where they're just like, you know what? I'm done with this. Like, yeah. did you, did you, like did you hit a point? I could did you hit I a point for you? Or? That because I was like that for a while at work. But when, when I saw things like just get out of hand, I was just like, oh no (laughs) you know oh no like this is not good and then when when you have certain situation affect your mental health Mm -hmm. right and your emotional health then you gotta pull out like you know i i once worked for this doctor that made my life a living hell while i was pregnant and when i was due back from maternity leave i quit and he just looked at me like, don't you need this job? You just, you have a newborn. And I was like, you know what? I'd rather be unemployed because I couldn't deal with, I couldn't deal with him anymore. It was just like the pressure, the stress that I was under with, on, with this man, the anxiety. I was just like, I can't work for you anymore. Like I can't, I need to be in a stable environment where my mental health is not being challenged. It's crazy that he said that because it's almost it almost seems like premeditated. Like I'm going to treat her this way because she needs this job anyway. I could do whatever I want. Well, yeah. So people have this perception in corporate America, especially if you're working for a white person that we're insignificant that we're, or, or that we're doing this job because we're struggling, not because we like the job, but we're doing it because we have nothing better to do. And it goes back to, you know, the perception. You know how people say, no, que los inmigrantes no está quitando los trabajos. But you're not doing them. You're not applying to those jobs. Why? Because you feel they're beneath you. Mm-hmm. You feel that the only people that should be doing those jobs are the Latinos and the Black people. You would never apply for those jobs. Right? So how can you say we're taking those jobs away from you? And it's the same thing in in corporate America, white people have a certain, the majority of white people have a certain privilege that they don't struggle like we, like we do. You never hear a white person say, yeah, because I used to work in McDonald's to help my mother pay the rent. Have you heard that story? (laughs) You know, I haven't heard those stories among white people. You hear those from Latinos and Blacks. Right. So they feel that, you know, their parents are, are taking care of him. They could stay in the house till they're 30, living with their parents, you know, not having to worry about any responsibilities or whatnot. Their dad is hooking them up with a job. We don't have that. We start with summer youth. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. We start with summer youth. And then, si acaso, si tu le caíste bien a tal y tal persona, you know, they'll help you out. But other than that, you don't have those hookups within our community with, with you know, because it, it, it's just not common. And why a lot of white folks feel that, you know, oh, you're, you have that position because you couldn't do better for yourself. Right? Yeah. So to me, it's just like, nah. I remember one time I, w- I was, I had put my son in a program 
and the program was um was mostly for low-income parents immigrant parents undocumented camp parents i had no idea but i saw how they were treating people because that was the population and then they started treating me like that as well and i was like wow like you think that because you're undocumented or you don't speak the language that you don't have emotion or that you don't have rights that's messed up what what exactly was happening well it was just the way they would talk to the parents mm. and the way they they would deal with anything that had to do with their child it was a, a daycare center so every time you ask them a question it was just like an attitude you know like it, everything that was simple was just complicated was just an issue they would talk down on you know down at you and i'm like oh it took me three times can you see it again so i pulled them out but i was able to pull them out because i didn't depend on that program but a lot of those parents had to put up with that mm -hmm. because they didn't have they 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 had to yeah you know they probably weren't in the in the best financial situation or whatever to pull their child out of there but i was and i was yeah. able to you know pull him out and i have to deal with that situation but imagínate you you already dealing with with the pressures of life and struggling with with making ends meet and then you know you send your child to a program where you are told that he's going to be taken care of and whatnot and the staff is just treating you like shit yeah yeah no i mean I'm glad that you're at the point where, you know, you, you're comfortable and confident in being your authentic self. Not only that, but you're inspiring so many other people to be themselves with Dominican Writers Association. You know, now I know that we're at time, so I'll finish with this last question. Like, as you continue to just like look forward in life, like what's one thing that continues to inspire and empower you to continue being your most authentic self? I would say that my biggest inspiration is my son because I teach him a lot about advocating for himself at a young age because I wasn't taught that. And it wasn't allowed in, in a Dominican household. You couldn't say you didn't like that or you didn't want to eat this or you felt this way or, you know, or this is going on with you or you hurt my feelings. You weren't allowed to say that in growing up in a Dominican household. And I've taught my son that he ha he matters. You know, his feelings are valid. Um, his opinion matters. Sometimes he gets out of hand with what he says, you know? <laughs> you know, like this morning he sends me something and I'm just like, why are you rushing? I was like, you sent me this at the last minute. He's like, secondly, I'm not, I'm not rushing you. I don't know where you get that from. <laughs> He's 13 and I'm just like, oh, this little boy, you know? But then I, then I have to remember he gets that from you because I've taught him, don't let people talk to you a certain way or treat you a certain way. And if you ever have a curiosity or a question about anything, I need you to advocate for yourself. And this is how you do it. And now he does it all the time. He does it with his teachers. He does it with his friends. And sometimes I'm listening to him and I'm like, yes, you know, he gets it. Um, so that's super important to me. If I'm not authentic with myself, I can't teach that to my kid. And I think that's harmful.